What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. All right, everybody, welcome back to season two of Lean In. I am here with a good friend and colleague, Dr. John Hendricks, who is a palliative care physician. I'm excited to talk to him about some things that I think we all need to hear. We're going to talk about death and dying and and in the realm of difficult conversations. I think this is pretty high up the list. So, John, thanks for spending this morning with me. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think before we get into what you do now, I think it's a good place to start to talk about what you used to do. You used to be a a critical care physician. And at some point, you decided, hey, I don't want to do critical care anymore. I want to get into palliative medicine. And so I've got two questions for you. One is, why did you decide to make that change? And then my second part of the question is, is that change as big of a change as it may seem to those who aren't? a critical care doctor or a palliative care physician? Sure. Actually, my decision to do palliative care preceded my time in the ICU. I started as a hospital doctor and had been taking care of you know acutely ill patients for quite a while. No good exposure to palliative care prior to that to um, coming to my current facility that I work at. I met the palliative care team. And I, I wasn't in the ICU at that time, but I really enjoyed working with them And one of the unique properties of the program we were at is that we had kind of continuity of patients. We had assigned doctors we took care of, and then we would see patients if they came back in three months. And after a while, I kept seeing kind of these same patients over and over. And I started to question, what am I doing to these poor people? Am I really doing what they want? Have we ever really stopped and talked about that? So I I spent more time with the palliative care provider, started doing some work with hospice, and really thought, you know what, I think this is where I truly belong. And so went and got grandfathered in and got board certified in 2012 to be a palliative care provider. And that was my goal was to start working on the team. However, I kind of got waylaid into the ICU. It was supposed to be a three-month gig, and it turned into over two years. The nice thing about the ICU is I actually got to perform my palliative care skills. In the ICU, you're having a lot of difficult conversations, not so much with the patients, but with the families. And really, you're trying to explore what was important with patients, what were their goals, what are they trying to do, and really kind of what life would they like to live, especially after time in the ICU. Many of them are quite debilitated afterwards. Many of them are in situations that they probably wouldn't want to be in. And and that's what palliative care at its essence is. I mean, we, we get in our foot in the door by helping with symptoms for many of our patients. But a lot of it is just those conversations about, hey, what do you understand what's going on with you? What do you think the doctor is trying to do for you? What are you wanting out of this? And so uh, it really, for me, was was a perfect time to kind of hone those skills. And then I finally was able to move into palliative care. So my, my goal all the time was always to be in palliative care. I loved critical care medicine. I really enjoyed the complexity of it. You know, I get asked this before many times like that, you know, palliative care and critical care of like exclusive of each other. I, I think they're collaborative, I think there's a lot of palliative care that that physicians provide. They don't realize that they provide. And so palliative care works well in all of those areas. And so I I have enjoyed 
that time in the ICU, I enjoyed my palliative care time more. And so I don't look at them as exclusive whatsoever. I think that they work hand in hand. And, and actually, I think when palliative care and, and critical care medicine work together, the patients get much better care as well as the family. Yeah. You know, as you, as you mentioned, a couple of the roles that palliative care doctors have, and we've shared a lot of patients, and I have seen the benefit of getting palliative care on board really as soon as possible. Um, I think every physician should have some sort of skill set in terms of having end-of-life discussions with their patients, but it's, it's really an art. And you all do it so often that those conversations that you can have with the family, usually with the family, about end-of-life care for their loved ones seems to make a huge difference in helping them understand what's ahead of them and what, what is going to be helpful for their loved one and what's not. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have about your role or the role of palliative care in general? Well, I, I've always joked that people see us walking down the hallways and think, oh, palliative care team, someone's dying. And so I think there's this common misconception that you only call us in at the end. And I think that's such a waste of, of our talents and what we can do and how helpful we can be with the patients. I don't want to be called at the end. And, and I, with my program, I've actually worked to try to get us involved with patients as soon as possible when a serious illness is, is diagnosed. I think a lot of people think of us as just hospice. And, and I understand where that misconception came from because we, we rose out of the hospice movement. You know, hospice started initially and, and hospice is just palliative care at the last six months of life. It is when you make a decision on hospice, you decide I'm not going to focus on aggressive measures towards keeping my life extended. I'm just going to focus on comfort and let nature take its course. The palliative care movement then kind of sprung out of that. And we realized, hey, we could actually be more helpful well down the road with patients, get upstream. And But I think many doctors are just used to us as being the comfort measures team and the hospice. And so it's trying to break that mindset. I think the other thing is that sometimes we're just treated as pain doctors. And, and I, I have no training in pain. I manage a lot of pain patients. But the pain that I deal with is more cancer-related type pain. I, I don't do procedures in, in that kind of situation. You know, I think there's also a misconception that um, a patient goes, quote, unquote, on palliative care. You know, that we don't you, we don't go on to cardiology and we don't go on to nephrology, right? When you have kidney issues, you just get referred. And so th there is no going on to palliative care. We can be involved with the patient working alongside your oncologist. I've told patients that, you know, our goal is to help improve your quality of life for as long as possible. And so think of it as me holding your left hand while your oncologist holds your right hand. And together, we're going to help guide you through this and support you and, and improve your quality of life and give you as much time as possible. And you mentioned a bit about kind of the differences between palliative care and hospice. But, but oftentimes you do recommend after discussions with family and patient that, that hospice may be appropriate. Can you just kind of touch on what is the role of hospice and why for, for some people is hospice the, the right choice? So hospice is really kind of a care pathway for, for patients. When I think of hospice, I think of two things. Have, have we exhausted all the treatments that are available to a patient? We really don't have anything left to offer other than comfort. And the other thing is, is, is what is in the patient's goals. And so when we go in and have conversations, hospice may not even be on the table. But as we sit and have a conversation with the patient 
and and ask them, hey, what is your understanding of what's going on? What are you trying to do with these treatments? And then explain what the doctors are trying to do. But I think what we do is then we go that step further to explain what the consequences and the repercussions are about some of the treatment choices. And then ask the patient, are these acceptable to you? Is this what you want? Is this how you want to live your remaining days? Do you want to keep coming to the hospital and keep going to doctor's thing and keep doing chemotherapy if it's only going to give you a couple extra months? And and many times when patients have those conversations, they're like, you know, that's not what I want. I, if, if this is what's in front of me, I want to focus on my family, make sure I'm comfortable, that I'm not in any pain. And so in that situation, we'll we'll say, well, hey, we have we have an option for you. It's hospice. Now, the, the problem with hospice, and I love hospice. I drink the hospice Kool-Aid. I think it's a fantastic thing. I think we're fortunate that we have hospice in this country. But the problem with hospice is it is exclusive. Once you make that decision, then you have to kind of give up those other options. And and I think, especially with oncology patients, it's pretty clear that if you could offer them hospice and continued chemotherapy and radiation, if that's what they want, they actually do much better. Having those intense services of hospice, you know, hospice is aggressive comfort. You get nurses, social workers, and chaplains. They're available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have a medical director who's, you know, making sure that your symptoms are well controlled. Patients thrive sometimes, especially at the beginning, in that, having that kind of intense support. Having that kind of intense support while you're going through chemotherapy, I think patients would thrive also. So it's sad that hospice is exclusive. I'd like to see a day where a patient can be on hospice and the the fear of being on hospice goes away and they're like, oh, I'm on hospice and I'm getting my treatment. A couple of weeks ago, I actually had a, a friend who had a, her mother um, was very ill. And she she was in the ICU, intubated and, and hooked up to as about as many machines as it seemed that someone can be hooked up to. And her daughter was the only child and really felt the burden of making the decision on letting her mother go and switching the goals to helping her die peacefully. And the fortunate thing was her mother had an advanced directive. And it spelled out everything. And when I was talking to my friend, I just said, hey, you know, you shouldn't feel any burden because your mother had the, the foresight to remove this burden from you. She's, she's let us know exactly what she wants. And I found that to be incredibly helpful for her daughter. It just, just after having that discussion, there just seemed to be a relief that was lifted off of her shoulders because her mom not only was looking out for herself, but was looking out for her daughter. Uh, because when we're asked to make these decisions, we're not asked to make the decision on what we would want for our loved one. We're really asked to make the decision based on what our loved one would want. And so I guess my question that from that comment is, you know, although we can't really decide what we die from, we do sometimes have a say-so on how we die. That's my thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I think it's extremely important that you as a person, especially if you want someone to make decisions for you, you tell them what you you would want. I think advanced directives, while written by lawyers and sometimes are vague and difficult to understand, I think they're a fantastic document to help us. When I have conversations with patients about making these decisions, I, I am very clear to them. I was like, look, I think you need to decide. And I, I'm not afraid to pull out the guilt card on them and say, look, 
I deal with patients all the time who didn't make these decisions, didn't talk to their family, and watching their family struggle and what they have to go through, trying to decide if they're making the right decision. And then they live with the guilt and the regret. Did I do the right thing? And I'm like, if you could leave your family with one thing, don't leave them with that. You know, you, you sit there and tell them what you want. Or give them an idea. You may not know specifically what you want, but just say, you know, hey, if I'm not able to get back to what things were like, I don't necessarily want to be kept in a different kind of state. And so I think it's an it, it's important, and, and you can decide. I mean, and the default for most physicians, and you know this, is to keep a patient alive at all costs. But that's not the default for most patients. But they don't, they're not, they don't understand that. You know, we, we have patients come in and say, I want everything done. Well, everything done to them may just be like, well, make sure I get antibiotics if I've got an infection and that I'm not in pain. To me as a physician, especially as a former ICU doctor, everything done is I'm going to put you on the ventilator. We may keep you on the ventilator rest of your life, feeding tubes, dialysis, all that kind of stuff. And patients may not want that. And so we felt as physicians to even have those conversations beforehand and encouraging patients to do the advanced directive and talking to their loved ones. If we would take more time doing that, I think we would save so much grief. And the last thing I do with patients, and if patients aren't able to, it's really with the families, I strongly encourage them to advocate for what they think the patient would want to do. That's and, then, and then what I tell them is like, look, if you can tell me if, the, if your loved one was standing here right now and we were having this conversation, what do you think they would say? And they'd say, I don't want, they wouldn't want this. Okay, well, your role is to advocate. Your role is just to tell me that, but you're not making the decision. You know the decision. They made the decision. You know what they want. So just just tell me what they want, and you're not making this. And I th- I think that has been very helpful. And I, I think that's one thing that palliative care does very well that a lot of doctors don't think about. That That's why where the art comes in. But I also wanted to say back to what you had talked about, it is a skill that can be learned. It's just the conversations are scary, and it's getting over the fair factor about all that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that last comment uh, about – just making those decisions from the perspective of your loved one. And, and even if your loved one doesn't have a, a living will and an advanced directive, and those are important, but even if they don't, you can lessen the burden on yourself by just keeping that in mind. You're not, you're not making this decision based on your opinions and what you want. Oftentimes we want our loved ones, obviously, to live forever, right? right. But that's not the question. Right. The question is, what would they want? Right. And if you can kind of reconcile that, it surely makes it a little bit easier, and it removes some burden when you look at it from that perspective. And I don't think enough of us in healthcare frame it in that way, and it places unnecessary burden on family members. Yeah, and and I think one thing that doctors could do to help in this situation is to, you know, really ha- sit and have like one of the visits they have with the patient instead of it's a heart failure patient. And you're like, we're going to adjust your your water pill to help get rid of fluid and your blood pressure medicines is like have a conversation just to kind of walk them through what the typical path is for a heart failure patient so they can prepare. I will tell patients, look, I don't know what your prognosis is. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I'm not God, but I have experience and I know what the studies show. And and I'm going to give you advice based off what I've experienced with other patients. And this is what I typically see. And then give them that information and then they can help make decisions down the road, you know, with we live in a world now where only about 10% of us just drop dead. 
90% of the people we interact with are going to have a disease trajectory. And we know what those are. And, and sitting a patient down and having those conversations and then encouraging them, hey, talk to your loved ones, let them know what's going on. Fill out an advanced directive or a, a physician order for life-sustaining therapies or a DNR or something like that or just talk to them would save so much grief and, and make everyone's, even the physician's job, easier. It would probably help with our moral injury, our burnout. I mean, how many times have you talked to a provider who's just like, I can't believe they're doing this? And and for me, it's like, well, are they doing this or did we just not have the conversation and they don't know what they're doing? And we get so cynical right. on our end yeah. because of that. Yeah. And it's just we got to have these conversations. I think one of the things that I talk about is with – especially with some of my ICU colleagues when they're kind of struggling. I say, hey, did you educate them? Did you talk to them about what they're agreeing to? Are they aware of all this? And they said, yeah. I was like, you know, some people want to have that death that we don't want for ourselves. And I think that's where we struggle as providers is that I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're doing this. I wouldn't want to – I wouldn't want to be like that. And so I, I try to encourage them like, hey, take the eye out of that. Right. If you educated the patient, said, you know what? I don't care what's going on. I want you pounding on my chest. I want to be live at all costs. That's the death they chose. And so you're supporting them through that. It may not be what you want. So you shouldn't feel bad about that. And I think that's the transference is a big issue with with providers. I think we look at patients and think, oh my gosh, why are they doing this? And for some people, that's what they want. And, and there's nothing wrong as long as you've educated them and they have an informed choice and like this is the death I want, then that's okay. There's nothing wrong. So to switch switch gears just a bit, I saw something. This was a couple months ago, and it was it was anecdotal, but it was someone who had a career in hospice or palliative care, and she kind of went through this list, and this list basically was a list of the regrets of those who are dying. And this list had things like, I wish I would have worked less. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have lived my life for me as opposed to someone else. I wish I could have been more comfortable with who I am. And, and, you know, notably missing from that list was, you know, I wish I would have picked up that extra shift. Or, you know, I I wish I would have worked harder in my job, right? And so, you know, that's, I think, really good insight. And and this is— insight that I know you have. And, and I guess my question is, you know, do you feel like working in this field and you know, you've done it for several years now, has it given you any clarity for you on, on what really matters in life? I would like to say yes, but knowing myself, I probably say yes, I know, but do I practice what I know? Probably not. My priorities in my life are my family. And I know my goals of care, and I've been very clear with my wife that as long as I have meaningful interaction with my kiddos, I'm willing to do some things. Like, I'm a fat man. I like food. I never want a feeding tube, right? I just do not want a feeding tube. Um, but if, if a doctor came along and said, hey, a feeding tube is going to give you an extra year with your kiddos and it's good, meaningful time, I would do that. Right. I think it's it's made me sit and and we're pretty honest with our kids about death and dying and and just being forthright. You know, death is normal. It's biology. It's just what happens. And so we talk about it all the time. And 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 I try to I tell my kids, like, hey, there's going to be a time I'm not going to be here. And uh, because I I always worry about if I leave them early, what's going to happen to them psychologically. So I, I I'm preparing them now. 
I, hopefully it's 20, 30 years down the road. But if it happens, I want them to understand. We, we talk about it. And, and uh, I, I think the other thing for me is it just tries to make me appreciate what I do have. You know, I'm, I've been blessed in my life. And I, I think the other thing in this career that has helped me is, is seeing a lot of people who aren't have the blessings that I have and trying to give back to society in, in ways that I, w- ways that I can. Maybe it's that Catholic guilt that creeps up on me. Mm-hmm. I try to make those moments where I put my phone away and I'm like, okay, I'm going to just sit here and stare at my kids for a few minutes, right? I want to member, I want to have this memory burned. The phone is not going to, I don't want to leave my kids with memories of me on my phone. I want to leave my kids with memories of me participating, going on vacation. I'm a religious person. I believe in God. I believe in heaven. I'm also a scientist. So there's the skeptical part of me. I don't know if I take any of this with me when I leave, but I know I can leave things for my kids and my wife. And so I, I, I do try to do that, I don't know if I'm always successful. Well, I think that's a great perspective. And as a, as you know, as a new father, it's a perspective that I'm beginning to learn myself. And I think there is something about family that centers us. And uh, in the work we do, especially the work you do, but the work I do as well, I think it's it's important to uh, try to remember what matters. And I'm really thankful for, for our friendship. I'm thankful for your insight, sharing your, your, your morning with me. I know it's your, your week off, so... Dr. John Hendricks, thanks so much for your time this morning. I know that the listeners will definitely find some value in, in, in all of your wisdom. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, I feel the same about you. Love you, dude. Love you too, man. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Jabron Pasha on Instagram at what medicine did and on unlockingimplicitbias.com thanks for leaning in with me